Hey guys, it's Adam Van, the star of At Odds With Wrestling. We've recently launched a Patreon where you can get all kinds of exclusive podcasts and additional content from Joe and myself. And because the first taste is always free, here's a sample of the exclusive Show Homework podcast. Enjoy. Obligation you owe your family and yourself. Home, home, homework. Homework, it's an obligation you owe your family and yourself. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the very first At Odds with Wrestling Patreon exclusive show. Uh, this is where the homework is now. This is Joe and Adam joining you. Hello, Adam. Hey, Joe. Anxious to make money here. This is good times. <laughs> <laughs> you high five, you make money, pal. Uh, yep. <laughs> we are talking for this episode about the homework that Adam assigned, which was the official title, Hitman Heart, Wrestling with Shadows, the documentary that was filmed uh, during what ended up being um, they did not know this at the time, which is uh, quite the lucky coincidence, if you ask me. Uh, ends up being Mr. Hitman's last year in the World Wrestling Entertainment. Uh, they look like they start right around. Um, so it looks like. So, and again, we're not going to do like a bit by bit thing, but again, we have like stuff that we're going to talk about, of course. Um, Adam did post up my uh, handwritten show notes. Yep, those were available earlier today, as were my handwritten notes, Joe. Oh, I saw that, too. <laughs> I, I think they're both equal in quality. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was one of those things. So it's just one of those things. So usually my notes are a fucking disaster, right? Mm-hmm. And as I was looking at them about halfway down, and I'm like, oh, these are almost legible. <laughs> I'm like... You know, other shows for their Patreons and stuff, but like the show notes or whatever it is up. Um, let's see if Adam would be interested in this sort of thing. And like I said, it's a brand new Patreon. We're still figuring out what uh, could be and should be and would be available, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I find them interesting. Like I obviously, they're more like a bullet points thing. And I'm always fascinated if I have notes, uh, like my legitimate notes that are on my computer right now. Uh, they're they're practically long form. Like I write paragraphs, mm-hmm. you know, just to be able to sound somewhat like I know what I'm talking about, and I know that it doesn't come across that way. But yeah. yours are like, you know, it'll just say Brett versus Dino, and you'll have like 20 minutes to go on that. You know, <laughs> like it'll just be. Uh, it's interesting how you are able to remember stuff based on very little information. Yeah, and and you know, we mentioned it during the main show. I'd be remiss not to mention it here. Go definitely check out uh, Kevin Hellion's write-up over at MassLibrary.com. Uh, Kevin gets a lot more deep in regards to the interpersonal relationship between Brett and Stu and Brett and Vince uh, than we are going to do here, you know? No, absolutely. I didn't have any of that perspective, you know, that yeah. he took as, you know, as a father. Uh, for me, like, I get that that was there, but it wasn't the underlying message that I got from the documentary, you know? Yeah. But before we get into the documentary itself, just, Joe, like, when was the first time you saw this? How many times have you seen it since it came out? That kind of stuff. 
So I was an internet person by the time 97, 98 rolls around, you know? Sure. Um, and it was like mid-98 where you started hearing stuff um, about this documentary that was done. And then I think it came out like late 98, early 99, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Yep. Um, and, you know, it was one of those things where I think it aired, because it aired on like Canadian TV, it ended up just airing on like A&E over here in the States, you know? Yeah, like, so I definitely remember seeing it on television, but I, uh, for whatever reason, I had it in my mind that it was on, like, PBS or something, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it was on, like, a channel, like, Discovery or A&E or whatever it was, um, and it was just one of those things being on, on online that early, you know, there was discussion about it and where it was going to be available and when you could see it and that sort of thing. I, I will tell you the one place where you did get no publicity about this this taking place was on uh, WCW television where Brett was wrestling at the time. Uh, really? They didn't out. promote it? They didn't promote it at all? They gave it like a passing mention on an episode of Nitro, and that was it. Do you think it's because it was all the footage of WWF people or just because they had no financial gain other than elevating Bret Hart? I think it was because by the time that this documentary came out, WCW was in such a shambles, they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. Gotcha. You gotta spend that time promoting the Nitro Grill. Or something, you know, or <laughs> yeah. a deal with Master P or whatever the fuck they were doing instead of, you know, promoting literally one of the biggest stars in wrestling history, having a documentary made about him. Uh, that kind of paints, you know, Vince McMahon, not so much world wrestling entertainment. And you could say that Vince and WWE are synonymous, but painting Vince in a very negative light and painting Brett in a pretty positive light. And you have this thing that's available on like all these different outlets across North America that paints a guy that you have under contract as this like sympathetic character and like you do nothing with it. Yeah. Well, next thing you know, you're going to tell me that they flubbed Bret Hart as a whole. You know, <laughs> they fumbled the, it. <laughs> the documentary ends with like, you know, obviously as most documentaries end, it's like, oh, this sort of where are they now sort of thing, right? Yeah. Um, And I will guess that this probably like the finish edit, and again, to kind of put a date and a timestamp on everything, the finish edit of this was more than likely prior to Owen's passing. Yeah, I feel like they would have mentioned right. you know, something at least in the the ending credits deal. Right. So the fact that like that's not mentioned leads me to believe that the finish edit of this probably takes place prior to May of 1999. Um and the documentary ends that Bret Hart currently wrestles for Ted Turner's World Championship Wrestling. Yeah. You and know, he even made it, made it a point, like, not to get ahead of ourselves, but towards the end, he's training with, like, somebody. I don't know who that was. And, like, the, the, the guy he was training with is like, oh, Brett can do this for another 10 years. He's in such amazing shape. So you're left to believe that, you know, he was ending just one chapter of his career and starting another one. Right. But I've probably seen this at least a good dozen times. Really? I, yeah. I want to say, and this is a, probably going to be a surprise to no one, this is my second viewing. So uh, this is, there's so many great lines in this documentary. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to get pure Mr. Hitman, right? All the things that people say about Mr. Hitman 
a majority of them either originated with this documentary or were bolstered by this documentary, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're like a true hitman head, you know this documentary like almost inside and out for the like the Brett parts, right? Yeah. And if you're a Bret Hart fan and you, for some reason, haven't seen this, you need to go watch it immediately. It's free. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's available for free on YouTube. Um, again, it's not the best quality copy. You know, it looks like it was off an airing that has like a test pattern at the beginning, for Christ's sakes, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's like a, a part, like maybe like 20 minutes in where like the audio just drops out for like 10 seconds. And I don't know what the fuck's going on. Right. <laughs> yeah we'll splurge for the blu-ray it's available now yeah know? it's still available i think there's like 200 left right yeah. uh amazon's got plenty but fuck amazon <laughs> exactly um but it the documentary starts out with you know us getting what's going to show up a little bit later on in the documentary itself which is how everything ends up where brett is talking about what wwe wants to have happen or what's what has happened to the hitman and brett says about this is essentially taking the quote-unquote hitman character and blowing his brains out yeah losing to sean is like blowing his brains out very dramatic but losing the title to sean in montreal yeah right yeah so with all of that being said then we get the bit from um the monday night raw and like it's a documentary they're just like liberally using wf footage you know yeah Um, kevin brought up a good point like i wonder how the contract was and you know maybe we'll talk about this as we go but the contract this documentary crew had with the wwf to have access not only backstage and just film indiscriminately but also like you know, you would think that if WWF had some type of final edit, which I'm sure they didn't, um, maybe they were just allowed to have the footage, you know, because WWF was losing the ratings war at this time. So maybe they were like, hey, any press is good press. Go ahead and feel free to use our stuff. That's exactly what I think it was. That yeah. because when this deal was originally made, which was probably, if I was to guess, late 96, early 97 of what is you know addressed and what they have access to and everything else like that like the deal is made somewhere around there but it looks like the access runs from like the canadian stampede uh in your house pay-per-view in summer of 90 uh summer of 96 up until brett leaving in november of 97 so like they got like a year's worth of access and more than likely when this deal was made exactly as you said the WWS is like, yeah, sure, you know, do whatever you want. And because Brett was Brett at the time, he is in good standing. Like, Brett's like, oh, yeah, we could trust these guys. They're good to go. And they could uh, trust these guys until WWF did some shit that, you know, is going to paint them in a negative light. And by that time, I'm sure there was nothing they could do about it, you know? Yeah, the contracts were already dry. And, you know, especially during the Attitude Era and before there, like, mainstream wrestling you know wwf wcw would do anything to get exposure on anything else like you know tv movies sports center yada yada right um and then you know so that on top of this makes me wonder so they make this deal to have brett do this documentary you know everything that happens to get to the end of the documentary and like i said we're gonna get there but then after all of this happens Vince lets um, 
Barry uh, Barry Blaustein have access for Beyond the Mat. <laughs> yeah. And so how how just give me the timeline on this. How long after Wrestling with Shadows was Beyond the Mat? Was Beyond the Mat filming any part of it concurrently with this? Or was it just well after? So it was filming concurrent with this, but like they Beyond the Mat runs from like 97 because they're doing like ECW stuff with Terry Funk up to Terry Funk's Texas retirement, which was the summer of 1997. Up to to like the end or up to the beginning of 1999 because you have this stuff in there with Mick Foley and The Rock that happens at SummerSlam 90 or at uh, Royal Rumble 99. Yeah. So, I mean, it's entirely possible, and I'm just spitballing here, that when the, the Beyond the Mat contract was signed, they the WWF had not seen the final version of Wrestling with Shadows. Or, you know, like it was just one of the things where they might have slightly overlapped. And it wasn't one of those things where Beyond or Wrestling with Shadows came out, it had the backlash, it had whatever kind of negative press. And then the Beyond the Mat people came to them. It probably was like, oh, man, I wish we had known. Like, it it was signed just too early, if that makes sense. Right. I I definitely think that was it because, like, they get access in Beyond the Mat. And we're not talking about Beyond the Mat. We're talking about Hitman (laughs) Hart wrestling with shadows. But they get access to, like, Vince's office and, like, the infamous thing with, like, the Vince saying, like, we make movies and taking the gulp of water and going (laughs) over stuff with the Draws character and Vince doing the he's going to puke thing. That's like summer of 98, you know? Yeah. yeah, so I definitely feel like Beyond the Mat was, pro- because it was probably, they would su- they would say yes to anybody who asked. And it was just one of the things where Beyond the Mat, you know, that deal was probably inked before Wrestling with Shadows was released, before Brett, you know, the whole screw job happened. So, you know, it, they might have rethought their access after the Bret Hart thing, but you know, they, everybody who tried to get in, got in. Yeah. And you know, and obviously they're telling a story here. So the narrative of this does run a little bit differently. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we get the bit at the beginning where we see, um, you know, the Brett talking about the Hitman character, having his brains blown out. And a lot of this, you know, obviously if you watch the entire, like that line out of context, is what ends up where all these people that paint Brett is like, oh, he takes himself too seriously, right? But if you watch the entire documentary in context, you see that Brett does take himself seriously, but not as seriously as that line would have you believe, you know? Yeah, no, it is definitely, if you're just watching that opening as like a sizzle reel, yeah, you're going to assume that Brett's a bit of a diva. And, right. and he does... I am not the biggest Bret Hart apologist on the planet, but even I will say that like, that that's not the vibe I get from him for the rest of the, the doc. Yeah, but that's the reputation that Bret has even almost to this day, you know? And I do definitely think that Bret, in what he lets out to the public, he does lean into it a little bit, um, especially like the stuff with Bill Goldberg. Um, yeah. But that, you know, that being said, um, you know, so we get, some uh, Bret Hart promo outtakes, which I love. You know what I mean? Like those guys that are filming those localized promos. Yeah. Where essentially it's like, okay, hey, uh, we're at TV. You need to film a month of promos hyping up the house shows for the next 12 dates that you're on. 
here are the towns, make it interesting, you know? Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of seeing, like, promo outtakes, promo bloopers, these guys that, like, we get to see the finished, polished product and to see that, like, even the best screw up from time to time, you know? I, I won't make the joke about great promo guy Bret Hart flubbing l- lines repeatedly, you know? Mm. Uh, I don't know if you're going to go this route. I just want to say, like, the next, immediately after that, he then introduces all of the members of the Hart Foundation, but conveniently completely omits Brian Pillman, despite the fact that he's Brian Pillman, pronouns pal, is in pretty much the entire documentary, but never named, never gets a Chiron, nothing. Right. Now, that, I think, is because Brian had passed. But it's not like he Ben Wad somebody. You know, no, like, no. But I just think that it was because. So the narrative that the documentarian was trying to take, I'm guessing, was who is direct family to the Hart family? And Brian was not married to like he trained with the Hearts, but he was not a brother or a cousin or married to anyone in the family. Yeah. No, I get it. It's just weird to see. Like, if you're not a wrestling fan, you don't know the context of the Heart Foundation, why this guy is there and he's not dressed like the rest of them with the jackets and whatnot. Like, why is he not being mentioned, but he's always there? It would have just made sense to just have a real quick throwaway. And, you know, and here's Brian Pillman. You know, he's a crazy guy. He trained in the Stu Hart dungeon. You know, right. that, that would be fine. And like I said, I, I just definitely think it was because Brian had passed at that point. And I think the more they lingered on what Brian's story was, you then would have to now work into the documentary itself, Brian's passing. Yeah. No, I get you. It just felt awkward. For sure. But this is taking, this definitely is being filmed um, at the Canadian Stampede in your house pay-per-view, which is summer of 97. We're going to come back to that narratively wise where all this stuff sort of happens. Uh, we get bits with Sonny. We get bits with Vader. And I love the bit Vader talking about that his uh, big plan was going to be that he opened up like a bunch of mini malls or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, it's just about to break ground, I think, or something, right. something like that. And I don't know if you remember one of the latter day big show storylines in WWE was that he had invested in some mini malls that went out of business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I and that was the that. reason why he turned and joined the authority. <laughs> man maybe this maybe mini malls and like strip malls and just the overall decline of retail that that should be a bigger wrestling storyline it should be and then there's discussion about gold dust and brett talking about the character then we get to see some backstage thing of like dustin and the road dog and a couple other people uh you know horsing around let's say <laughs> Uh, yeah, definitely doesn't hold up in 2023. Uh, a little bit slanderous. Yeah, yeah, a little offensive, but it is what it is, right? Yeah, and I, I feel like, it, again, this is 25 years ago, but it wasn't 125 years ago. There's a lot of that in this, if you pay attention. You know, a lot of, like, using, like, calling people gay as an insult, you know, regarding Sean, regarding Goldust, you know, stuff like that. It happens a couple times. And again, it was a different time. <laughs> you can certainly judge, but it is what it is, you know? Yeah. Yep. Uh, so then we get a, bi- a brief introduction to Stu and Stu's personal history, and that leads into the family's history itself. And it's one of those things that I always forget about Stu that, like, 
you know, he was a depression era child and like his father was arrested and went to jail because of a bad land deal. So then Stu and his sisters were just sent off to an orphanage. <laughs> yeah. Speak of a different time. Right. Exactly. So it's just like, yeah, just that's just the way that like the world was a hundred years ago, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and oh, go aside ahead. from a black and white picture, like I don't think Stu ever didn't look a hundred years old. Like they show him in Stampede wrestling with Brett and he looked 80 back in like late the late seventies, you know? Right. Late seventies, early eighties where like they show Brett making his debut in Stampede and he's like, I'm going to team with my dad. And here's like a young Brett Hart with an old, with a 90 year old man <laughs> who's shaped like a barrel with his pants pulled up to his chest, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, is there like video footage of Stu Hart wrestling where he didn't look like, you know, like close to death Stu Hart? Well, that's, that's just the way that people look back then. That's just the way it was, you know? Yeah. All right. But so, it's, uh, I was just uh, going to say Stu Hart, they say in the documentary, fell into a club of shooters, which I, I just hate when that happens. <laughs> well, listen, that's just how it happens from time to time, you know? Yeah. Uh, so then they're talking about like Stu doing his training and like how Stu trained all the brothers and everything else like that. And a key thing that Brett brings up and they kind of like show some examples of it. And Brett mentions that when you're involved in professional wrestling, you should wrestle a full contact, no injury style, right? Mm -hmm. And Brett says, like, look at my punches, look at my kicks, right? They look like I'm killing the guy. But, like, if you go out there and because your work is so bad that you injure your opponent or you go out there and you can't make your stuff look good, then essentially you shouldn't be in the in wrestling. And, like, is that a very old-school mentality to have? Yeah. But I think some of the best guys even today, whether they do so consciously or subconsciously, subscribe to that same mentality that they do wrestle a full-contact style. And listen, it's a full-contact style, and, like, you're going to have bumps and bruises and marks on your body, but you're not coming out of those matches if you're good with you're injured whether you injured the other person or you yourself got injured because you're so reckless and careless with the way that you do things in the ring you know yeah like just not to get off topic completely but you look at like a, a Moxley or a Danielson or an Eddie Kingston they look like they're legitimately beating the fucking piss out of somebody but right. you know they're doing it well enough that they're not you know exactly um and then there's the discussion about like you know uh, Stu would have like the people come and you know say that wrestling is fake and you know football guys or guys from other sports and Stu would like lull them into this false sense of security it's like oh why don't you come back to the to my place and we'll take you down to the gym and like oh maybe you'll teach me a, a thing or two you know yeah and I, I have a feeling that Stu Hart may be an undiagnosed sadist <laughs> Now, granted, of course, when he was training people, probably in the 60s and 70s and up to the early 80s, he was a little bit more spry, even though we'd been making jokes that he looked like an 80-year-old man his entire life. <laughs> but by the time the late 90s were all around, like, 
they're they're literally like luring people to the Hart family house so they could lay on the ground of their basement and a hundred year old man could beat the shit out of them. Yeah, this is probably something to be said about it being a badge of honor to like basic. I'm not saying that like you or I could ever get out of a 90 year old Stu Hart's like hold, but he's probably not getting us into that hold unless we kind of let him. Right, right, exactly. I'm not going to, okay, lay on the mat, uh, lay on your belly, move your arm back like this, now move your other arm back like this, and okay, now wait, Stu's going to get into position. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, keep waiting, and then eventually when Stu gets there, he's going to stretch me, and I'm like, I'm not going to lay here and let a fucking hundred-year-old man stretch me, like, I'm not a jerk-off, right? Yeah. Um, And then there's the bit where, you know, as, you know, they were talking about, like, um having them record stuff and they play the recording. Cause it was like going through the household and going through the pipes with the country music playing. And then there's the bit where you hear Stu say, have some discipline, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the person that he's saying that to is like basically whimpering and crying like a baby. Right. And I was trying to look for it. And sadly I could not find it. Uh, but there was a bit that they used to play on the, the Howard Stern show where they would play like S and M porn and uh, the line was, um, it was a guy with definitely something in his mouth, right? And he's <laughs> he's whimpering, and the guy's like, yeah, you want to play? going to play hard, too, huh? You like that, huh? And I was going to play that clip and claim that was uh, more unreleased footage from the Stu Hart uh, <laughs> sessions down in his basement, you know? Yeah. And one other thing before we move on, obviously, uh, Brett and his sister's talked about like growing up as a member of the Hart family and getting picked on and all that stuff. And Brett tells a story about beating the crap out of a bully that was like way too big for him to have any chance. And he says, and they, they all hoisted me up on their shoulders and celebrated. Is that the 1998 equivalent of like, or the Canadian equivalent of lean? Like, Oh, and then everybody clapped and the teacher said, I got an A for the semester. Well, he mentions as he's going, like, they set things up. He challenges the bully. He says, like, after school in the alley or whatever it is. And he goes, as I was on my way there, one of the teachers even gave me, like, a knowing look, like, you got this, you know? <laughs> I thought the teacher said, nice to know you. Oh, I, or like, whatever it was, you yeah, know? It was, like, it was yeah. the, even the teacher thought I was going to get my ass kicked. Oh, okay. <clears throat> But yeah, I don't believe that story for a second. At least in the, they hoisted me up on their shoulders and carried me out after I beat up the bully. Bullshit, Brett. <laughs> yeah, that one might be a little bit of a fabrication, right? Yeah. But it's Canada. We don't know. Listen, it's a different culture. <laughs> it's a different time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um. So we then jump backwards in time to September of 1996 in the documentary. And we're talking about Uh, When Brett makes his decision to stay with the WWE, where Turner had offered him the $3 million a year for three years deal, and then Vince counters with, uh, I think it was like one, they don't say the number in the documentary, but they say it's like a 20-year contract, right? Yeah, I have this written down, as you said, three years, $9 million, so $3 uh, $3 million a year. Brett says in the documentary that WWF offered him a 20-year deal for, quote, a lot less money. So I just did some quick math. Okay, 
let's just assume it was the same money. Brett says it was a lot less, but if it was the same money, let's just say 9 million divided by 20 years, that's 450K. So is he talking about a lot less money per year, which makes sense because $3 million a year, sure, maybe Vince didn't want to meet that. Or is he talking about a whole lot less money over the course of the contract? Because I can't imagine... WCW offering them three million a year and WWF offering them four hundred and fifty k a year. So okay, it was okay. Um, the way that it averaged out, and it wasn't twenty years at this number, but let's say that it was twenty years at one point five a year, right? Okay. And they they actually went over the whole thing uh, a couple months ago on between the sheets. Uh, Bix and Chris did a real good job of going over all this, but the way that it worked was that it was a higher upfront number that Brett was getting it closer to not 2 million, but closer to 2 million for the first five years of the contract. And then the back, like the next 10 and the next five were going to be lower because he was going to be like in an office role and everything else like that. But they were looking at like for those first five years, we were going to come close to two million a year, but we were going to try to keep him as an ambassador, an agent, a booker, whatever. Yeah, they're front loading the contract. Yeah, that. it was a front loaded contract that was averaging to be like one, not not quite one and a half million a year, but like I said, the first five years were the higher end years. Gotcha. Okay, it, it would have made. I know that you probably don't want to air your laundry well, like publicly, especially at the time he's an active wrestler. Yeah. But like it would have been better if they shed some light on what WWF's counter offer was, you know, other than saying it was a lot less money, but it was over 20 years. Yeah. And they show the footage of Brett coming out on that raw in September of 96, where he opens up the raw and he makes his a proclamation that he's going to stay in the WWE. And I don't believe, and Brett says this, Vince says this, Bruce says this, so many other people involved with this say this, and I don't believe a single one of them that say that Brett went out there and Vince didn't know what Brett was going to say. Yeah, because they made it a point to show Vince's reaction and it was supposed to be like, uh, oh, hey, look, if you're if you're in the know, he's learning right now. Yeah, and I think that's bullshit. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, So then we get like, a, so we, like we were, we were in the summer of 97 or uh, yeah, we were in the summer of 97. We jumped back to September of 96 and now Brett has to like, okay, so here's the idea. I come in. Then there's this character stone cold. This is the beginning of the fans liking a more evil character. We get to the double turn at WrestleMania. And then we get the idea of the character of the new character for the Hitman, where Brett kind of is like, how can we make my character a heel, but like not sacrifice what the Hitman character is? Because that was Brett's whole big thing, of course, is, and you really see it in this documentary. And like, obviously we know this now that Brett was like, granted like WWF's business was in North America, the United States for the most part, but overseas, like even when Hogan was in the company, Brett and Undertaker were like the number one and number two guys. Like I'm talking like 1990 and 91. Yeah. Brett was like super over in like Germany and India and all these other countries for the longest time. And Brett was like, how can we turn my character heel to freshen it up, but somehow not lose 
whatever my character has as an international figure. And they come upon, you know, the character where he's a heel in the United States and he's a baby face everywhere else. Yeah. And God damn it, it worked, man. It was like some of the hottest shit, you know? Yeah, I, I will say like that era of Bret Hart, and this is going to be very controversial take amongst our listeners. That is by far, and it's not even close. My favorite era of Bret Hart is that era of heel hitman because i just loved the dichotomy of if he's in the united states he's getting booed if he's outside of the united states he's getting cheered and at no point like does he really do anything heelish other than just put over canada and like they do it in this uh this documentary where he's like in canada we take care of our old and our sick you know we don't we have gun control like that kind of yes it's a dig at the united states but it's not mustache twirling evil stuff you know but i do feel like you mentioned like oh this is brett coming up with a new spin on his character i do feel like it's presented in the documentary that he didn't want any part of any of that because he did he did say like i want to be a hero you know, and that's the most important thing to me is that, I'm, uh, you know, I don't want to be booed. So I do feel like that spin on the character, if it was his, like, idea, which I don't think it was, I think that he had to be dragged, kicking and screaming to do it. Like, he he slam dunked, he hit home run, but I feel like he didn't want any part of it, even though it was best for business. Right, and that's, so the thing is, Brett doesn't have to do this if there's not a Stone Cold Steve Austin as hot as he was in late 96 early 97 right sure and this is part of brett's doing because the reason that brett comes back and stays in 96 is because he wants to work with austin austin gets like mega over and like brett is already starting to not get booed but definitely not get the cheers when he's against austin so like i said he he definitely like he did drag his feet a little bit on that but i think Brett was smart enough to see like, okay, you know, if we don't go too far, then I could come back from this. But they do mention, you know, obviously how you had mentioned, like it was more so putting over Canada, less putting down the United States. But they do show that one promo where he talks about how if uh, you were to give the United States an enema, you'd stick the hose in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And then uh, he immediately and, hated that. that he yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, like, it's it's good. It was interesting to hear Brett, like, even, like, almost immediately after he does that line, you know, that he's like, oh, I kind of regretted that one, you know? Yeah. And, and that's what I think this heel run ends up being is, as good as it was from an entertainment standpoint and having Austin to be playing off of, that so much of it was not who Brett was and not who Brett saw the Hitman character was. And, like, you, you have to hand it to Brett to be someone who was not 100% sold on the direction of the character to go out there and do it as well as he did. Yeah. And and here's just a hypothetical, like let's assume Brett stays and let's assume, you know, Owen's healthy and with us and, you know, the heart foundations with us, all those members uh, and Brett stayed by in, you know, he didn't get pissy and like want to change the direction. Do you think that whole, gimmick of being a babyface internationally and a heel in the United States. Do you think that was sustainable long term or would have just fizzled out eventually? If Austin doesn't get hurt at SummerSlam, it stays healthy. It stays big, right? Okay. Cuz the plan out before Austin gets hurt at SummerSlam, 
was for them to go to that year's WrestleMania because during the entire feud of Brett and Austin, Austin never beat Brett. Yeah. And the plan initially was Austin beats Owen for the Intercontinental title. They do the slow build to do the rematch at WrestleMania that year. Brett as the champion and Austin finally gets his win off Brett. But could you see this gimmick of, again, the uh, the heel slash face, could you see it surviving onto his next program after Austin? Okay, so what I would, and again, this is fantasy booking 25 sure. years ago. You have you have Brett lose to Austin, right? And obviously you have to also take into consideration Undertaker's still doing the thing with Kane. Um, the original plan for Kane was only so, supposed to run to WrestleMania, and then like he ends up being a character there for 20 years, right? Yeah. And then you have to take into consideration, let's say Sean doesn't get injured, right? Sure. Um, all the like all these other things come up, right? But let's say everything just goes exactly as it is. Brett takes time off after WrestleMania, after he loses the belt to Steve, and you do a deal where DX is there. DX never turns babyface. They're a heel faction against Austin. And Austin's the lone wolf, and he has no one to back him up. And then it's finally Brett, who's always been against DX. And now the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And he goes with Austin. Now, Conversely, Brett has recently said in interviews that there was a plan pitched to him that this whole thing of the enemy of my enemy is my friend thing was supposed to happen with him and Sean. Of him, like, aligning with Sean? Yeah. Okay. So it's very interesting. Like, it definitely was going to be there that there was definitely going to be not the Sergeant Slaughter, I want my country back sort of thing. But it was going to be some sort of thing where Brett and like even toward that last month uh, before Brett goes, he's kind of like going away from the bashing America thing and more so like you're all a bunch of degenerates sort of thing, you know? Yeah, more like tearing into the the non-PG television, you know? Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Um, where were we? OK, so again, we're not I'm not going to get into the whole. um. You know, Brett, obviously, like, oh, I, I like I, whatever I wanted to do didn't matter because, you know, my dad wanted me to go into the Olympics. And yeah. then Brett ends up not going to the Olympics and Brett ends up going to, the, to wrestling because he's trying to please his father, his actual father, Stu. And then he gets into wrestling and Vince has this weird pull over his top talent. And Brett's not the only one where they end up seeing Vince as a father figure. And I always find that to be such a weird quality, both for Vince, who has that sort of sway over his top talent, that that's the sort of relationship that he needs to have with them. And mm -hmm. then also the multiple times that it's happened from Hogan right on down the line that yeah. like fall into this trap of like Vince is my father figure. Yeah, I mean, the Vince piece of shit, but he's a, like a cult of personality, you know? Yeah, for and sure. That's, that's how he gets in trouble with the women as well, you know? He's just got Ugh. some type of, like, no, he's not, and not even making a joke about it. Like, he's got uh, an allure to him. He's got the Kavorka. And for guys, it's the father figure. You know, for you know, for women, it's something else, you know? Yeah, it certainly is something else. <laughs> so but, now, oh, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say, like, uh, the, I don't know if you're going to talk at all about the Canadian Stampede pay-per-view. Yeah. Uh, what a shitty finish, both in what was planned and then what what actually happened. Like, they're both equally as bad. Like, the... Uh, like just the idea of, oh, we're the big, the big spot is going to be like Bruce Hart's going to throw water at Stone Cold, but then Stone Cold's going to think it was like Stu who can't fucking move, let alone throw a glass of water. I 100% disagree with you. Oh, you're wrong, but go ahead. I, so I wish we had more audio or more backstage footage of Pat Patterson putting together matches. Oh, I agree with that. Oh my God. The most fascinating, enthralling stuff that you'll ever see. And just like how these things that in the match itself look like, it's like, oh, spur of the moment sort of thing, or these long drawn out planned spots. And listen, man, the the bit of the, 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 the whole idea of that spot was as much of a jerk off and as much as a heel as Austin's character in Canada is going to be for him to cross the line and go after Stu Hart. Like, even if you were a Canadian fan and you were like, nah, I still like Stone Cold. He's really cool. You know, you want to get every single person in that building booing Stone Cold. You have them lay hands on Stu Hart, you know? Yeah. No. And how I, do we I, get there? Like, we can't just have Austin do it. There has to be a provocation for it, you know? All right. You're turning me a little bit towards it, but to have it be the finish of the match with the roll-up, that, that's weak for a main event of a pay-per-view. Well, again, you want to still keep Austin strong. You don't want to blow off the Brett Austin thing, and you want to move it to the mini program with Owen for the summer so that you could do Austin and Owen at SummerSlam. Mm -hmm. All right. I get you. I, I just don't think it was a great pay-per-view finish. I love I liked the uh the Pat Patterson explanation. Plus he, he talks so fast and in such I don't want to say insider terms because it's like I understand it, but like if I was just there trying to listen to him, like I couldn't follow. I'd be like, hold on, slow down. What'd you say? Let me write that down. I'm gonna forget, you know? Well, I think I, I could say probably for years and years of those people going over finishes with Pat and everything else like that. Yeah, they probably it. speak Pat shorthand, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and Brett says something right around this point in the documentary that I loved. He said, uh, I used to never worry about getting hurt, just worried about screwing up. Now he doesn't worry about screwing up, just getting hurt, which I thought was a, a fascinating thing for like a veteran, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, again, like I said, he's starting to get a little bit older. You know, he's 40 years old as we're talking here, right? Yeah. Which, you know, we take for granted now in 2023 that there's so many guys that are just hitting their prime in like 40 plus where Brett at that point had been wrestling in the WWF for 12 years. He had been wrestling for, you know, almost 20 years at that point. And 40, it was like, you're old now. You're put out the pasture. You're done. Your usefulness is done here, right? Yeah. Um. So, you know, I have it in my notes. Of course, there's the story that Brett, you're talking about getting hurt or whatever it is. And there's a, a famous match. Uh, singles match that he has with Dino Bravo on a, on a Maple Leaf Garden show or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, whatever your opinion of Dino Bravo is, is whatever it is. But, like, Dino Bravo just, like, whipped Brett a little bit too hard. And, like, Brett, like, had, you know, cracked his sternum or had that sternum injury. And that was the only one time that he was ever seriously injured up to that point in wrestling. And that was, like, 1991 or whatever it was, you know? 
Um, yeah. 97, he took some time off for the leg injury, but that was more storyline than anything else. Um, but yeah, that's like the, the Dino Bravo story is like now part of Brett lore, if you will. Yeah. And it's funny that like you're trying to establish that Vince has been like a father figure to him, but then he points out like, Hey, this one time I got hurt and my father wasn't there for me because he, he paid me next to nothing while I was out. Right. So, um, so, so then we get another bit of like, here's a little bit more of the future guys for WWE where we get a little bit more of Austin. We get a little bit more of Mick Foley and like the mankind character. We even get a little bit of triple H and what his character is, you know? Yeah. So like, it's interesting that like, these are the guys that end up carrying the company into 98, 99 and 2000, you know? Yeah. Um, that they get this featured moment. And then now coming out of Canadian stampede, the whole thing is set up where Brett is going to win the title at SummerSlam, but it's going to be because of Shawn Michaels' interference, right? Yeah, and Brett is worried that Shawn is going to scoop his heat as the referee. Oh, right. So, <laughs> um, scoop my heat, that's where the phrasing comes from. That Todd from Longbox Heroes has taken to ladling my warmth. <laughs> yeah, I like Todd's version better. <laughs> yes. Um, and of course I love the bit they do. There's a prolonged bit here where they're interviewing fans in the parking lot. Cause I think that's what the, this was at the Meadowlands, right? Okay. And the Meadowlands is close enough that people from Canada could come in and see the show live. So they're speaking to Canadian fans in the United States and they're speaking to American fans. And, you know, it's very interesting to see the ideals and the mindset of wrestling fans in 1997. Um, yeah. <laughs> I the I want to know how every single person interviewed here is doing today. <laughs> Assuming half of them are dead from heart failure. <laughs> well, most importantly, I want to see how the woman who uh, got into... Um, computer design or... Co right. Computer graphic graphics. Computer because graphics. she became a fan of Bret Hart. Her entire life changed because of Bret Hart. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely computer graphics. And I wasn't sure if that was just like Photoshop or like like video game creation. Like what is what does computer graphics mean? Yeah, it was something with computers, right? It was a general ed type of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then they showed like how the finish of everything comes off in SummerSlam. And they show Brucey backstage at Gorilla. And Brucey looks like shit. <laughs> Yeah. And, like, that's, that's like, Brucey looks like shit for him, you know? Yeah. Um, 2023, after, like, multiple heart attacks, and God knows whatever the hell Bruce has been through in his life, he looks better today than he did 25 years ago. Yeah. And uh, Brett wins the title uh, versus Taker, and then just mopes. You know, he's got the championship, and he's just moping around backstage because he's pissy that Sean was involved in the, in the finish. Well, again, he's starting to see, like, I'm the number one heel currently, and if you're going to do this angle with Sean, and that's going to put him as the top heel, well, where does that put me as the champion after, like, you know, since April of 97, these last four or five months that you've devoted to making me the top guy, and now just all of a sudden, like, oh, no, you're not the top guy anymore, it's Sean. I mean, at what point, like, I get it, Brett's amazing, but you can't be the number two heel for a couple months? 
Not if you're the champion. I mean, but you're the champion. So what other validation do you want? Like you could be co-top heel and, but, and you have the edge because you're the champion. Like what he's coming off as having like a very fragile ego. Again, making excuses for Mr. Hitman. I'm not going to say that it's a fragile ego, but I'm definitely going to say it's him seeing, well, because wrestling was a different time. You can't have multiple top heat. Like, there can only be one number one, and that's either on the good guy side or the bad guy side. You know what I mean? Like, as over as The Undertaker was in 1997, he wasn't as over as Stone Cold, right? Yeah. And as over as Brett was as a heel, if they're going to strap the rocket to Sean, it don't matter if you're the champion. And for the next three months, Brett as the champion is treated as second best on the TVs. And we talked about this, you know, beforehand where he's losing matches on TV to the Patriot and having pay-per-view matches against the Patriot that are third match from the top. And all the main events of the next three pay-per-views are all Sean. But like, so was, you're you're saying that like is Brett being whiny and a bitch and paranoid? Yes, but was he correct? Yes. I I just trying to figure out like if in his mind like he's gonna sign a twenty year deal and his mind maybe he's got like let's just say eight years of ring in ring action ahead of him. Like, did he expect the next eight years to be he's either the champion or challenging for the champion and the main event of every single show for the rest of his career? Uh, I would think at least until the end of the year, (laughs) if the plan initially was to get to WrestleMania and for Austin to finally get his big win over the champion, the man who has eluded him, you know, since this program has began, you know, maybe keep me as hot as, you know, the champion should be. Gotcha. All right. Just asking questions. Right. Um, so like I said, okay, so you mentioned this earlier where there's the guy that's training Brett and the guy's like, oh, he's in great shape. It don't matter if he's, you know, 50 or 40 years old. He's got another 10 years left in in him. And this is like the beginning of like, I'm sure it's because of pressure from the family and not seeing whomever that Brett is starting to be like, yeah, you know, another 10 years, you know, I'm the prisoner with the best cell in the yard, you know? (laughs) And he starts making like the Shawshank Redemption references to his time in professional wrestling. And then the discussions with the wife, Julie, about how, you know, maybe they should be looking at more time to get out than continue and extend his career as a professional wrestler, you know? Yeah. I mean, he had a lot of pressure of being like the only heart that's making money other than maybe Owen, you know? Right. Exactly. And Davian and Anvil are doing all well, right. I think. They're not like, I mean, of the actual Stu and Helen kids. Sure, sure. Um, so then it's around this time where like we've, you know, we we run through everything that, you know, uh Adam is like, oh, Brett is unfounded and these sort of things. Where <laughs> WWE starts their hard left to go as Brett calls it smut TV with the more focus on the more risque and the more over the top and the language, which is all DX stuff, right? So Sean is the one that's kind of benefiting from this. And they talk about how, you know, they, they conversate backstage. It's like, Oh yeah. Say this about me in the promos. And I'll say this about you in the promos. And then like Sean, like Brett claims that he's saying what they agreed upon. And then, 
Sean would start going too far with stuff. You know, talking about like, uh, like Stu is dead. And like, they even show the one promo where the hearts are in the ring and DX is on the screen backstage. And both Sean and Hunter are telling Brett that like, yeah, you're the champion. We're both better wrestlers than you. We're both younger than you. Yeah, We're bigger. both like, like just completely burying them. Yeah, like bigger. I'll give, I'll give you Sean doing it, but like, who the fuck is nineteen ninety seven Hunter Hearst Helmsley to be saying that he's better than anyone above a Duke Drosy level? Yeah, no, I get you. Um, what was I gonna say here? Like, I, around this point, like also like. Brett's, Brett's making illusions that this whole heel run has completely sabotaged his career too. Yeah, right. So like I said, he 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 definitely comes across as someone who thought that he'd be able to do this where like he's heel in the United States and a baby face everywhere else. And he's starting to see that like, maybe that's not working. And there's negative sentiment that like, he's really starting to feel. And like, he's a guy who you know, was a heel early in his WWF career. But at this point, he, he's been a babyface for like the last 10 years. Yeah. And, and I could definitely see like you having that adulation and having that interaction or whatever it is with the fans. And like, yeah, he probably still had it in 97 at this time, but he's probably starting to see it waver a little bit, you know? And yeah. I think a lot of it is because of the heel character but also just in the general nature and not just in WWE because this was just 97 into 98. That was just the general nature of where society was going with like more hard edge things, more salacious things and more sort of things like that. And that wasn't Brett. Yeah. So Vince is in financial peril. Can't afford Brett and says to go to WCW. Right. And that go see if that offer is still good. Yeah. And WCW calls him out of the blue, just coincidentally, and says, what can we do to make you, uh, what do we have to pay? What's it going to take? And that pretty much leads us to his last 30 days with the company leading up to Survivor Series. So if you want to go from there. Now, the one thing that is not something that was, it was known at the time, but it wasn't like super well-known at the time. It's something that was more so well-known now. So as... Vince, who had just a year earlier agreed to give Brett this 20-year deal at like, uh, you know, a sub $2 million for the first couple of years, whatever, whatever. And now here a year later saying that he can't afford the contract, that he's in financial peril. While this is going on, Vince is negotiating to try to bring Hulk Hogan back to WWF. Okay. For a similar contract that he was telling Brett he couldn't pay Brett with. Because the company was in financial peril. And this is like prime Hollywood Hogan era, you know, NWA, right? Because right? yeah. Hogan's contract was coming up here shortly and Hogan was feel putting out feelers and whatever it was. And it ended up eventually, you know, it eventually ended up being nothing. But when you're telling your current top star that we can't afford the contract that you're currently under, but we're now going with the other company's top star to try to bring him back into the company. What the fuck are you doing, guys? Yeah. Of, it's of, almost as though Vince is a lying, deceitful person. Yeah. Well, of all of Vince's kids, he prefers 
Hulk has his kid more than Brett has his kid. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> it's the oldest, you know? But Vince leaks that Brett is leaving, and that pisses Brett off. Okay, so... Does Vince leak? So Brett definitely thinks Vince is the one that leaked it, okay? Yeah. When you say that Vince leaked it, do you consider anyone in the WWE someone that leaked it? Oh, sure. I mean, well, nobody in the WWE, none of his stooges act without his blessing. So if Brucey did it, if Patterson did it, if Russo did it, it was at the behest of Vince. Or or at the very least, like the knowledge of Vince, right? So yeah. Again, the shorthand for the documentary is that Vince is calling Dave Meltzer. Sure, sure. It wasn't him doing it. You know, it wasn't him in a trench coat in the shadows of a parking garage. Exactly. <laughs> and that's a, and that's another thing, too. You have to bear in mind, this is like the early infancy days of the Internet. Yeah. And for news to travel this quickly, um, that Brett is leaving is amazing and the fact that brett also goes on that off the record show on tsn yeah like during that 30-day time period and pretty much stooges himself off that he's leaving right so again the the like i'd have to go back and look at like the actual timeline as opposed to the documentary timeline to see when this stuff happened like does brett go on tsn drop a bunch of hints that he's leaving and then people start to resent him and say, oh, Vince must have leaked this. Or yeah. does Vince leak this? Word is out. And Brett's like, well, fuck it. I'm going to attempt, like, if Vince is leaking stuff and it's unofficial, let me go on the show off the record to go on the record and get my story out there to kind of hopefully squash whatever was leaked. Yeah, the documentary definitely presents it as if Vince leaked it and Brett is doing uh uh like or not I'm sorry, Brett is doing some kind of like spin or uh damage control, not the Bailey kind, and uh just basically saving his brand knowing that he needs to keep it alive for WCW. Right. Okay. Now I will say probably the rest of this from here on out, from the bit like to the build of Survivor Series and the Montreal screw job. I would say that all of this is pretty much like common knowledge to wrestling fans today. And this is something that I could kind of sort of take for granted and say, like, you know, all the bits of this, right? Yeah. Um, so because like we don't go I ahead. I was just gonna say it's not something that's like a narrative that the documentarians are trying to you know, spin, it's just here's what happened. Yeah, you know, screw job. And we all know what happened because it's been so part of wrestling culture for the last 25 years. But the one thing here is, of course, when Brett has the meeting with Vince to go over what the finish of the main event is going to be. And Brett is mic'd up for the documentary crew. Yeah, and it's a this, Right. And this is one of those things where this is what people who are... Montreal screw job truthers uh, truthers yeah. believe <laughs> proves that this has all been a work the whole time. Yeah. That Brett was wearing a wire. He knew he was wearing a wire going into it. And Vince knew he was wearing a wire going into it, knowing that this recorded conversation would be such a big smoking gun of the documentary 
that this would beyond a shadow of a doubt prove that they really did screw Brett and all this other stuff. Um, whereas I just think Brett was mic'd up for the document documentary documentary and went into the meeting and forgot that he was wearing it. Yeah, because it's not something that he probably gives a sec after a couple months of wearing it. You know, yeah. it's filming around for over a year. You know, you forget that it's there. You know, it's second nature. It's like your cell phone in your pocket by today's mentality, you know? And, and you know, and also on top of it, like, this is, you know, um, uh, what would end up being and possibly his last match in WWF. So his mind was probably preoccupied. He was probably being mic'd up by the documentary crew and not even paying attention to them. Yeah. And, you know, he's getting interviews and uh, dealing with press and saying goodbye to people, you know? Yeah. Because they show his wife, you know, saying goodbye to people and being a real bitch about it, too. Because people are like, oh, we'll be in touch, you know, going to miss you. And then they walk away and she's like, looks at the camera. She's like, yeah, they'll be in touch. Like, wow, well, that was a real bitchy way to act. Well, she, she was being a realist, right? Uh, yeah, but still, like, it's the person that was saying goodbye to him. They, like, they had no malice in it, you know? Yeah, well, listen, she's part of that life, but she's not part of that life. So I'll give her a little bit of a pass, you know? I guess. Um, also, so, you know, then, and listen, we get cooked shots in documentaries all the time um, that kind of are set up. You know, it's supposed to be realistic. It's supposed to be real life, and we're catching all of this stuff. But that shot that they have of Stu in his living room alone watching the pay-per-view Oh, yeah. <laughs> is one of the most infuriating shots of this whole thing. And maybe in film history. <laughs> like, that was just a completely set up bullshit shot. And it made me so mad watching it this time around. <laughs> yeah, it's so out of place. Because even when they show Brett in his house with his wife, like, it looks like a lived-in house. You know, with kids and like you're cooking dinners and making lunches and all that stuff. It look it doesn't look fancy. And then they show like broken down stew on like it looks like an old spice commercial, like the setup of that like that room. And yeah, he's watching the pay per view. You know, sure, just calmly watching it all by himself. He doesn't know how to turn on the TV. He's not watching the fucking show. Like, like the, the like the way it's lit and everything about it just was like, oh, like. It just sticks out like the phoniest of phony things, you know? Yeah, was when they were at his house a year before, six months before, they're like, hey, can we get, like, some B-roll of you watching television? We'll just use this later for something, you know? Right, and there's a couple times, like, they do it earlier in the documentary where, like, Brett and his kids are watching his appearance on The Simpsons, right? And they do it a little bit later on where, like, Brett and his kids or watching the DX Hitman parody that's on Raw, like, after he leaves, right? Yeah, and those okay. are fine, you know, because I those, believe those. Those look like they were real things that were happening. The stew one was, like, the fakest fucking shit I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, no, I agree. <sighs> Stu can't stay awake for a whole match. Right, <laughs> and then, of course, you know, we get we get the Montreal screw job, we get the finish, um... You know, and then this is where all of that famous footage after the pay-per-view goes off the air of Brett spitting on Vince and, you know, Brett flipping everybody off 
and destroying all the monitors at ringside and doing the WCW in the air and all the backstage stuff. Like this is footage that I think is like ingrained in wrestling fans' minds from the last 25 years. And it all comes from this documentary. Yeah. Like if you're not in the camp that this was a work, you know, shout out my boy Marcus, but uh, like you see this as, like in an era of shoot television where everything's a shoot brother, this is the most legitimate shoot you'll ever see on film. Right. You know, you, you have a guy and like, you know, and, and people are going to point, poke whatever holes they want and like, Oh, Brett was in on it. And this was all stage and act and everything else like that. But like, you have a guy who's like essentially in shock. Like he went in there expecting the worst. And the unimaginable happened. And like, yes, are we talking this way about wrestling characters and a title belt in 2023? Like it means anything? It meant something back in 1997 still. You know what I mean? Wrestling is very different today than it was then. And that was the beginning of Vince changing things so that like these characters didn't mean as much. And we didn't have, you know, we had a different connection with them and the people themselves portraying these characters had a different connection with them themselves. And they didn't have that same connection with the title belt because, you know, and again, you're actually not winning a contest, but you are essentially being awarded a trophy by the person who runs this company that says, I am a fan of enough of what you do that I want you to be the face of my company. The face? And, the face and then just to have the that pulled out from underneath you guys don't have that same mentality today they pretend that they do and maybe their on-screen character says that they do but like and i think that's maybe for the better that i think that helps some of the people and there's a lot of people today that aren't adjusted but i definitely think it makes a lot more modern wrestlers a little bit more well adjusted that they don't have this parasocial relationship with the person who runs the company, the company itself, the titles in the company and all that sort of thing that they can kind of separate themselves from it and say like, essentially this is just a prop. And I know this is a crazy thought process to even be having, but like, I think that makes a more healthy person in 2023. Yeah. And I mean, in 1998, you know, if you lost that title, you lose reputation, you lose reputation, you could lose a lot of money. And like, you're not making money on the indies in 1998, you know, the way you are now. You're not selling, you can't sell a t-shirt on your own in 1998. It's impossible. Like if it's yeah. not in the WWF catalog, you know, like it, it's just a different world. So you, you're kind of more of uh beholden to the, the like the structure, but I get what you're saying. Well, uh, and I'll say kudos to Mr. Hitman. He's one of the first guys that kind of, whether it was intentionally or unintentionally, circumvents a little bit of that during this time frame because he gets involved and lends his name. And again, of course, you know, with Vince's blessing, of course, to the Calgary Hitman minor league hockey team. Yeah. <laughs> so the hockey team can sell Hitman merchandise without the WWE like stamp of approval. Uh do you own a Calgary Hitman jersey in like 5X? No. No. I do I do uh I you know, uh, hang on, I'll take that back. Yes, I do and I wear it with my jorts when I go and I watch <laughs> Kevin Smith movies. <laughs> oh, that uh, how this become an insult on me? 
I was going to say, it's right. It's in the same closet with all my ICP hockey jerseys. So. <laughs> all right. But yeah, also just to wrap up the screw job, uh, but prior to it, uh, and just you were talking about Brett being dejected from it. Uh, like he had said he had, he talked to the referee, which was Earl, uh, and Earl swore on his kids that he wouldn't let anything happen to Brett. So, uh, yeah, I guess Earl doesn't care about his kids. Probably likes his job better, though. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but so, yeah, Sh- Sean, you weren't in on that, or you were in on that. I had no fucking idea. God is my witness. My hands are clean. Uh-huh. <laughs> a pre, a pre-finding Jesus, Sean Michaels, and Julie just there, like, giving Sean and Hunter fucking what for, man. And then, and again, this is a gift that goes around, and when it's the anniversary of this, and anytime Triple H in 2022-23 fucks up, you see that gif of Julie Hart saying, God is going to strike you down for what you did, Hunter, you know? And uh, I don't know. Listen, times uh, Julie could be right eventually, you know? Yeah, like, pl- Julie, can you please lift this curse on poor Papa H? I mean, oh, he's got heart trouble. You know, Stephanie left him. I mean, allegedly. Allegedly. He's lost control of the company, allegedly. Like, enough's enough, all right? Hasn't the man suffered? I think he could suffer a little bit longer. Um, <sighs> that being said, we also get the bit where, like, Brett and Vince have their back backroom meeting. No cameras. Uh, Brett's not mic'd up. And you see Brett come out and start taking his stuff off. And then you see the Vince selling the punch walk right yeah and i love brett's line in the documentary where he says uh vince ran into my hand right yeah and then of course in when vince talks about like he goes on on that on the record show and he talks about it on raw and everything else like that he says that he let brett punch him right yeah he's like this is the best way to get out of this situation i'll let him think he got one over me Right, but like the there, from from what I understand, there was a much more bigger scuffle back there. That Davy Boy was back there, and like in trying to break them up, like Davy Boy twisted his ankle. Shane was back there. Um, I think I even heard that uh, Owen kicked a door in, and it caused Brett's dog to go flying and lose. Oh, a- come on now! <laughs> Brett's a cat guy. He's not a dog guy. <laughs> My bad. Oh, what the hell's and Brett's cat's name is Smokey. <laughs> I'm not surprised you know that. There's a there's a no there's a great promo toward the end of his WCW days, where he comes out and like like Brett's like Brett's character is irre, irreputably damaged by this of what we see here in 1997 WCW as we talked about in the main show they completely bumblefuck the Brett the Hitman Hart character. Um, and there's a promo that Brett cuts where he says the only fan that he has still left is, is his cat, Smokey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. But yeah, so then like the, the documentary kind of wraps up. We mentioned before they show Brett at home uh, watching the episode of Raw where they bring out the little person dressed as Brett and they kind of humiliate him. Um, they talk about him going to WCW and like, obviously the, the, the documentary, like the footage ends there, but you know, I think this documentary does a great job of painting Brett as a sympathetic character, 
um, you know, kind of giving you the the viewer of this for the first time, you know, a lot of behind the scenes stuff that we typically would not be uh, privy to. And, you know, you know, we were getting like indie shoot interviews around this time, but never something from the big two as in-depth as this. And as much as I think Vince probably hates this documentary and hates Beyond the Mat, this was the beginning of Vince doing a lot more stuff like this, but under his control and with his say-so. Yeah, I mean, he saw, like, he might not have liked the subject matter, but he liked the idea of it, you know? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll ask you this. I was thinking about this as I was finishing watching the documentary. Obviously, this thing caught lightning in a bottle because, as we mentioned, it got lucky that what was supposed to be a day-in-the-life type of documentary ended up catching one of the most significant events in wrestling history. If this did not have the screw job in it, you know, if it just maybe it wraps up a month or two before the screw job, would anybody ever remember this? Or would this just be like, uh, like, I don't want to insult, uh, you know, the, the vice show that I can't remember, but like, um, dark side like, of the would, ring, dark side of the ring. Thank you. Would this just be a random, like dark side of the ring thing where it's like interesting for a week and then nobody ever thinks about it again. That's a great, I, I don't, that's a I don't great think the doc- point. Because I don't think the documentary itself is that good. It's just that it happened to be catching a, a significant event. Well, okay. So you uh, you said lightning in a bottle. You have your flashpoint of the Montreal screw job. Okay. Even without the Montreal screw job, this sort of unfettered access to so much of the behind the scenes WWE stuff, and for this documentary crew to be there as WWE is transitioning into the Attitude Era, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, let's say the Montreal Screwjob doesn't happen. Brett and Vince are able to agree upon a finish, and Brett gets to close out his tenure in the WWE on top the way that he wanted to. I think it's a different ending, but obviously, and it's still just as good as a documentary, but obviously it does not have that same emotional access or that emotional impact because it's not chronicling, you know, one of the most infamous moments in professional wrestling of the last 25 years. Yeah. I, I mean, it would be a fine documentary, but I think it would be a forgotten documentary. Okay. Like, I think Beyond the Mat would have came out a year or two later and would have completely erased it from everybody's memory. But does Beyond the Mat get the release and the and the access... And the penetration amongst like theaters outside of it just being what WWE will lie to you and say like, oh, we were told it was just going to be like an art house film that was going to show very few places. And then it ends up being like a national release, you know, worldwide or whatever it is. Um, That doesn't happen without this. Yeah. So let's say Beyond the Mat or Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows doesn't have the Montreal screw job then Beyond the Mat actually is an art house film and doesn't get the penetration that it got. Yeah, I mean, potentially, but it's not like Wrestling with Shadows was a box office hit. It was released on television. Right, it was released on television primarily in Canada, you know? Yeah, but I'm saying it's not like if Wrestling with Shadows bombed on television, I don't see how that hurts 
beyond the mats mm-hmm. fight like the theatrical run but i don't know it's yeah. all what ifs but i was just right. giving a comparison but uh joe i'll ask you this obviously 25 years later how how does it hold up did you enjoy it as much this time as the first time you watched it I absolutely enjoyed it had a blast walk watching this uh walking down memory lane you know yeah um i went into this obviously with the intention of just uh shitting all over bret hart but i you know again uh i'll be real with our patrons i do like brett i do respect him and i did enjoy this there's parts that i will nitpick of him being a little over dramatic clutching his pearls about the attitude era uh but i, I did like it a lot uh when i do my rankings which i'm going to say right now out of the five movies that we have done this this season, if you will, uh, Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows is now my number one. Just barely edging out fighting with my family. <laughs> I'm with you. Number one, barely edging out. What's my What was my number one before? Ready to Rumble? Uh, yeah, I think it was Ready to Rumble, but I told you, you need to keep your own list. I don't have yours. I'm not keeping my list. <laughs> but that's it for this, Joe. Obviously... Yes. No show homework next week because we do have a pay-per-view, but since there may be some people listening to these in order, what is up for the next show homework? Next show homework, uh, we're picking up with my WCW uh, 2000 rewatch, the in-between Russo eras. Uh, We're fresh off sold out. We've just crowned a new world heavyweight champion uh, in Chris Benoit. Uh, Kevin Nash, uh, leader of the NWO, is also the commissioner of World Championship Wrestling. And we're going to be watching the Nitro the day after, sold out, January 17th, 2000. And uh, let's just say, as much as things changed going into sold out, a lot is changed coming out of sold out the next day going into Nitro. (laughs) I'm sure everything will be fine. Yes. And I do have a feeling um, we may be taking, it's not going to be for some time, might be for like a month or so from now, but we might be taking a detour uh, on this because I I have something in mind um, probably sometime in May that we're going to take a break for and I'm going to assign for homework when it comes up my time. Gotcha. And we'll figure that out as we go along. And obviously I I have, I keep adding more and more movies to my list. Oh, sure. Documentaries and uh, whether it be wrestling movies or movies with wrestlers, uh, I I have so many ideas. So I'm glad that we're going to give this a chance to breathe on Patreon. Yes. But uh, I think that's it for the, the very first Patreon exclusive episode of at odds show homework, Joe. Yep, and again, I I think because it's Patreon, we give you a little bit extra, you know, if this was part of the regular show. Um, Not to say that it would be rushed, but I think we'd be like, it's like, oh, we don't want to do a three-plus-hour show, but then we end up doing two shows. One's (laughs) about two hours, and the other one's about an hour 20. So, uh, you know, it's it's six to one, half a dozen the other, you know? It's added value, Joe. (laughs) There you go. Thank you. All right, so, uh, hey, like Adam said, we'll be back in, like, two weeks to be talking about that episode of Nitro uh, from January of 2000, night after sold out. And, uh, like I said, no plugs, but thank you for your continued patron, your patronage or your brand-new patronage because it's a brand-new Patreon. Absolutely. Thank you. That's going to be it for the first episode of the Patreon-exclusive 
Show Homework. Every week when there isn't a premium live event, Joe and I release a new episode of Show Homework on the feed. In addition to that, there's also two episodes of Vintage at Odds per month, our homework notes, and the world-famous Joe Sposto Selfie of the Month. Support us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash Wrestling. Again, I'm Adam. Thank you for listening. You already know who I am, but consider subscribing to the Patreon, and see you next time. You're listening to the soon-to-be-named network, the Lamborghini of Podcast Network.